Starting today, the Buddhist Geeks Dojo, our Sangha in the Cloud, is open for training. Dojo literally means the place of the way or the place of awakening. You can think of the Buddhist Geeks Dojo as a training ground for the heart and mind, a place where you can put into practice with others those things that support the flourishing of mindful awareness, of compassion, of wisdom. And this isn't just about us, because we're nodes in the network of consciousness. We are the network. Our awakening is tied to the awakening of all things. So what the dojo really is, is your life. Your life is the place of the way. In the Buddhist Geeks Dojo, we simply train to realize this more deeply, more fully, more intimately. BuddhistGeeks.com slash dojo Buddhist Geeks Exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. Um, this is Vincent Horn, and I am excited to be back uh, doing a uh, string of interviews. And we're starting today with a very special guest. I'm here uh, over Skype with uh, Chula Dasa. And Chula Dasa, for those who aren't aware, is a Buddhist teacher in the United States. Um, he's been teaching and practicing for quite a while, I think at least four decades on the, on the practicing side. Um, he studied in both the Theravadan and Tibetan traditions. He's the director of a, a Sangha in Tucson, Arizona, the uh, Dharma Treasure Buddhist Sangha. And we're excited to have him here to speak about a forthcoming book and some of the ideas in that book called The Mind Illuminated. Uh, it's a complete meditation guide on integrating Buddhist wisdom and brain science. Chuladasa, it's great to have you on Buddhist Geeks. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, and I should mention before we, we jump into uh, some of the things I wanted to speak with you about that um, I first heard about your work through another uh, regular guest and speaker on the show, um, Shinzen Young. And I understand you guys are, you guys are Dharma buddies. So um, yeah. he told me there's this really, really cool guy hanging out in Arizona that you should really talk to at some point. He uh, really focuses and specializes on the shamatha practice and, and that he was a, a professor of neuroscience and uh, physiology and that he's doing really interesting stuff. So I'm so glad that, um, that we're able to finally uh, to make that conversation happen. That's great. And I wanted to start by asking you um, a little bit about your kind of background because uh, you're a professor, you taught for many years, um, both physiology and neuroscience, and then also this sort of deep Dharma practice uh, and teaching. And I was curious if you could um, talk a little bit about that hybrid background, that dual background, how you got into these different worlds and and sort of where, where they led you. Yes, I'd, I'd be glad to. Um, I first encountered Buddhism when I was a graduate student in physiology. I was doing my PhD. And... Um, Interesting how it came about, but first of all, I think I would probably consider myself to have been a spiritual seeker from oh, probably about the time I was 16, 15 or 16 years old, and uh, my father was a scientist, 
and uh, came from a Christian family. And so uh, I, I felt like the search for spiritual answers um, must lie in, in some one or the other or some combination of, of these, which were the only things that I really knew at that age. So as a result of that, uh, I spent a couple of years as a seminarian in a Catholic uh, order and um, realized that that was not the path. Um, at the same time, I had aspirations, first of all, of uh, becoming a theoretical physicist because, um, you know, I thought the answers to all my questions might possibly lie in that direction as well. Um, then I discovered uh, Advaita Vedanta through uh, Swami Vivekananda and the Vivekananda Vedanta Society in Chicago. So I got books from them and I tried learning to meditate, uh, trying to learn to meditate from Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Well, I can tell you that's <laughs> without any guidance, that's a pretty futile enterprise. But then uh, uh, then the Beatles introduced us to um, Maharishi Mahesh and Transcendental Meditation, and I was doing that. So I was at a time, a graduate student, where I was, you know, uh, between uh, working on my thesis and um, everything else that that involves. I was also trying to, to pra practice uh, Transcendental Meditation and studying Vedanta philosophy together with another graduate student uh, uh, who used to spend a lot of time with this. Um, although I found the TM fun and interesting enough that, uh, well, I, I, I was actually quite excited about it. At one point, I started doing the training to become a TM teacher. But then, quite by accident, I encountered a, uh, a Buddhist. Uh, he had been a monk ordained in uh, Southeast Asia. He'd come back to, I was living in Canada, Canada at the time. And so he came back to Canada, and I uh, met him and started talking to him. And I really knew nothing about Buddhism before then. And uh, the more we talked, the more interested I became. I remember a particular moment when he, remember I'd gone through the whole thing with the Catholic Church. <laughs> and also in a lot of the Vedanta, uh, there, there are a lot of ideas that you're presented with that you're just sort of expected to, you know, this is the way it is, accept it. So I, there was a very pivotal moment, I remember, where Upasaka came Ananda who was the person I'm referring to and who was my first teacher, told me that the Buddha had said, don't believe anything because I say it. Absolutely everything that I teach, you need to verify for yourself. And he explained to me that um, a, a, a sort of uncommon interpretation of the Four Noble Truths where, uh, you know, and he had the sutras to back it up, um, that, uh, the idea for each of those noble truths is that you validated it for yourself before you looked at the next one. You know, so you you, you validated for yourself, in fact, that um, the nature of suffering and uh, its mental and physical uh, aspects. And when you were satisfied that with that, then you moved on. And I was really struck, most of all, by this idea that here was a spiritual teaching 
where you weren't expected to take anything at all on faith for granted that there was uh, there was a, a methodology and an expectation that you were going to validate and discover all of these truths for yourself. And uh, from that moment on, I would have to say, <laughs> I was a Buddhist, and I was doing uh, I was doing a PhD in physiology. You know, I I continued the path in science simultaneously with us together. My interest had always been in the mind and consciousness, so naturally I was very interested in brain science. Of course, the state that it was at, this was back in the 1970s, the state that brain science was at was rather disappointing to me, but at the same time I could see uh, so much potential for understanding the mind through science and so that those are the two threads that have been intertwined for me in in all those years since then i believe the first met uh, came in about 1972 and uh, as i say he was my first teacher i've had um, another major teacher um, shortly after that jody dama bhikkhu who was probably the main teacher during my life? But so I was pursuing. I, I was teaching. I was teaching neuroscience. I was fascinated by uh, the potential of neuroscience, and uh, I have. Ne- I never gave up my interest in theoretical physics. And in exactly the same way that I saw brain science as being complementary to the meditation practice and the Buddhist studies I was doing. And exactly the same way, I found that um, that physics at the highest level, um, particle physics and quantum uh, theory, uh, relativity physics, uh, all of these things, I had exactly the same feeling about them. That that from the point of view of physics, we were really looking at exactly the same thing that we were looking at through the Dharma and through the brain science. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, it does. Thank you. Thank you. And and I was wondering if we could maybe uh, just take even one step further into w- some of what you're saying there. So you said you were finding these things to be complementary and that they were also pointing to the same thing. Um, wh- when you say they're pointing to the same thing or that they're complementary, what, what do you mean? Well, it was mostly just an intuitive sense that when when I would study something in uh, physics, I would often think that, wow, this is really, this is really, you know, an intuitive sense. This is really pointing in the same direction as the things that I'm studying uh, in, in, in Dharma. Uh, everything uh, from... Uh, uh, Dependent arising, which means that absolutely everything is causally uh, interconnected, and not only that, with uh, action at a distance, non-locality, so on and so forth. The interpenetrating nature of everything in the universe, from the point of view of physics, I said, "Wait a minute! This is this is really 
this is dependent arising. This is dependent arising in its most fully developed sense, as discussed in the Avatamsaka Sutra of the Huayan school. Um, same thing with emptiness. Uh, and um, it was just, as I learned about the one, it would trigger thoughts about the other. And more and more, this feeling just became stronger that not so much that I could see immediately how how they were complementing each other. It's just the feeling that, wow, both these tracks are going the same direction. Uh, it was a little bit the other way around with the relationship between brain science and uh, Dharma studies is that uh, I found the Dharma studies, and I find that to this day, the Dharma studies really illuminate brain science. In brain science, you come up with all kinds of interesting head-scratching results. Um, people come up with, people love to come up with wild ideas about what consciousness is and how it works and so on and so forth. And I had the just opposite feeling that as I would learn more uh, about what the Buddha had taught and what the great masters since the time of the Buddha had taught, uh, I would I just felt my say, myself saying to that um, those who have turned their mental powers inward to examine the nature of their mind have uncovered what are the answers that are, will explain the findings of uh, neuroscientists. Interesting. So, so as you went deeper into that, you sort of saw that the, the illumination uh, was, was primarily coming from sort of the, uh, the, the consciousness explorers of the past, illuminating the science. Do you think at some point, at, at any point, that, that the illumination could, could shine the other way as well? Do you think we'll at some point uh, develop our, our understanding of, of uh, you know, biophysiology enough to, to, say, shine a light on Dharma practice? Or has is it, is it sort of all been figured out or uncovered at this point? I think we're on the path to that. We're not there yet, but I think we're moving towards it quickly. If we survive long enough, um, it's going to become quite clear to us, uh, quite clear within the limits of, um, of the human mind. I mean, uh, let, let's, let's make no mistake at all. Uh, the human mind is just that. It, it has its limits. And the degree to which it can grasp ultimate truth uh, is limited. But yes, we will. Re I, I think that we're quite capable of, and in the not too distant future, uh, of coming to the point where we experience the melding of these in our understanding to the highest degree that our mind is available, or that our mind is capable of, rather. And um, that, in fact, is what a, an enlightened master is. It's somebody who has, uh, they, may not, they may not have the knowledge of the, the science part of it. But should it be presented to them, should they take the trouble to examine that, they're going to say, oh, yes, that's, that's another way of, that's just another way of saying 
what I've been understanding for all this time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, jumping, jumping, jumping from the deep end back to the, yeah, please. I just, I just, let's go to the really deep end. Then we'll go back. Okay. Oh, please. Let's do. Okay. Sounds good. The really, uh, the really deep end uh, is that is I'm, I'm a total non-dualist. And uh, I'm, I, I, I could write another book. I could talk to you for hours, all of the reasons for this. But I say mind and matter are one and the same. There is no difference except for the way that we perceive it. So sometimes we perceive the stuff that constitutes our reality as mind, and sometimes we perceive it as matter. They, for our human minds, they're like the two sides of a coin. There's no way that you can see both sides of a coin at the same time. And we lack the ability to have any sort of direct perception of the non-duality of mind and matter, but that as we develop the capacities that we have, we come to a place where it is so obvious that there is no question, and we can use that understanding. We can apply that understanding. You don't need to have a direct experience of uh, the ultimate non-duality of mind and matter, uh, in order for that knowledge to infuse uh, every perception in every moment of your life. And that's yet another way of describing the illuminated mind. Okay, interesting. So I, I know some of this is semantics, but some of this is also, like you said, the, the limitation related to the limitations of mind you said something really interesting there, which I which I really enjoyed, and I tend I tend actually personally to to lean in this direction myself, um, and the non duality of mind and matter. Uh, but I also grapple with uh, the, the paradoxes of it. And w- one thing you just said is that sometimes we're perceiving things uh, from the point of view of mind, and sometimes we're perceiving them from the point of view of matter, and that essentially they're describing the same type of thing or the same maybe you could say the same patterns. Um, what is it that's perceiving these things? <laughs> because that introduces, at least linguistically, a whole new duality <laughs> into the non-dual picture that you're painting us here, <laughs> at least for me. Oh, yes. Um, believe me, this is not a step into the shallow end of the pool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... Um, the what that is is perceiving it is a an aspect of the process that uh, uh, is ultimate reality. Um, and that, and in here, just for the sake of some of some of the listeners, I know there's some people that say no, no, no. Uh, there's no such thing as an ultimate reality, only an ultimate truth. And so let's just treat treat those as, as the same thing. I think it's easier for most of us, though. Um, we feel like um, we're experiencing something that's called a reality as opposed to things that are not real. So once again, if we go from dependent arising and then let, let's go to impermanence and the radical 
uh, anicca that the Buddha taught, which is there are no things. There is only process. There is only change. Um, and everything is interconnected. So that we, we have the experience of being a perceiver. But that perceiver is not any kind of self-existent, independent entity. That perceiver is merely uh, a process that is part of a greater process that is part of an even larger process that is part of the process that we could call ultimate reality. Okay? And so the perceiver is merely uh, a different aspect of the same stuff as the perceived. And there are an infinite number of points of view uh, by which one part of the great process of ultimate reality can experience other parts of the same process. That's what the perceiver is. Okay, cool. Momentarily existent, that's all. Well, I'm I'm wrap, trying to wrap my own perception around this conversation, and hopefully everyone else is enjoying the same <laughs> uh, stretch um, that I'm feeling. Um, I, you know, it's it's hard to know where to go from here, but um, you know, it. I think it's really interesting that we're starting here because, in some ways, this what we're describing feels like the the fundamental backdrop upon which to discuss all of the specific you know, instructions and trainings and distinctions that you end up making to support people in, I guess, what, per perceiving this for themselves or experiencing this for themselves? Yes, exactly, Vince, exactly. It, this, is, this is the background. And what I try to do in the book is to guide the meditator experientially to discover these things. And then I alternate, I alternate that with, a, with models of the mind that progressively approach exactly what I've said. Um, I've redefined, or I've, I've, I, I haven't redefined so much as elucidated with much greater clarity um, what consciousness is, uh, what its relationship to mind is, and, and, and we just start out in a very basic, simple way in, in my book, The Mind Illuminated, uh, with what's immediately obvious to absolutely everyone. And then as we go through the book and people start to have the kinds of experiences that are typical of a very advanced meditator, then we see how they allow for the further development of this model of the mind but ultimately and because it's a book specifically about meditation and because it's already i think 435 pages of text i had to draw a line but i hint when we get into the advanced stages and when i'm, when I'm discussing the true nature of consciousness and some of the implications of it i'm also pointing to the things that i just talked about consciousness what we call consciousness is a special instance of something that permeates the entire universe. Okay. So, um, 
kind of going to the basics in a way, um, starting with the the big picture and going into the details now, um, you know, you're, as you're describing how the book progresses, you know, one of the, the structures, the kind of models that you use to kind of uh, hang all of this information around is um, uh, this model of 10 stages of, of meditative training. Yes. And um, obviously the Buddhist tradition has tons of different stage models and um, sequences of training and things like that. So I was curious, um, is this a traditional model that's kind of been reimagined? Is this a model that you um, sort of came up with? What, where does this model come from? Well, the basic structure comes from Asanga. And uh, he described okay. he, he described nine stages. And I, I took what he had done, which was absolutely brilliant. Uh, and... Well, we can take it a step further back. The Anapasati Sutra is also describing uh, meditation, meditative development in exactly the same sequence that Asanga does and that uh, that later I have done. So it really it really goes back to the Buddha himself. But Asanga. Uh, the Buddha's, you know, uh, the Anapanasati Sutta is rather terse in its presentation. I think it assumes that the audience of that sutra has uh, have, have been listening for hundreds, if not thousands of hours of teaching and have spent hundreds, if not thousands of hours in meditation. And so the, the Anapanasati Sutra is a presentation to a highly experienced audience. What Asanga did is took this and basically fleshed it out a bit, not a lot, but he fleshed it out to make it into a structure that, um, well, has become extremely popular uh, as you're probably aware, within the Mahayana and within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition as well. It's, it's consistently taught. My own personal experience with it is, wow, this is incredible. Uh, and it not only, it all, not only tracked my own experience uh, to the point that I was when I discovered it, um, it, it told me where to go. And it also told me the what what were the things that I had missed out on on the way <laughs> that I had to go back and pick up, and so that's why uh, the primary basis of it it's a modified version of a sangha. And in one of my end notes, I provide a table. You know, on one side is a, a, a sangha's description of nine stages. And on the other side is my uh, the my variation of that that produces ten stages. Nice. Uh, there's a little bit a little bit of a rearrangement in a couple of places of the demarcation of one stage from another. The main thing that makes it ten stages rather than nine is that I added a whole stage developing a practice, which is essential. You know, the, the people Asanga was dealing with, they were already meditators surrounded by meditators. 
uh, he didn't need to have a stage of developing a practice. Then the other thing that I did at the other end was to um, uh, describe a stage where you're bringing all of the training that you have done and all of the uh, experience uh, that you have acquired into the culmination of a kind of samatha that you carry with you and you can essentially maintain in daily life, which is a huge window opener when it comes to to insight. Yes. Okay, cool. Thank you, Chuladasa. It was great, great to have you on the show. Thanks for, for bringing us through so many of these interesting ideas that you're exploring in the book and, and also the practices um, I should mention, uh, again, this book is coming out. I'm holding it in my hands here. This is a review copy. Um, it's it's coming out on October 6th, um, which, uh, by the way, is the same uh, time that you're going to be coming into the Buddhist Geeks Dojo to do a little practice AMA and Ask Me Anything session. So thank you for that. Um, and for folks that are practicing with us there, you'll have a chance to to chat with Chuladasa. Uh, in the meantime, you can pre-order the book. Um, this is going to be coming out a little bit before October 6th, then I'd highly recommend any serious practitioner who wants to get really geeky um, in terms of the technical aspect and theoretical aspect of meditation to check this out. And uh, thank you again. Really great to have you on the show. Thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your day. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.